0: I hope you'll find your bulletin insert this morning with our passage of Scripture uh, printed upon it. We'll use this as a unison reading. Uh, We're turning to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29. Jesus heals a boy with an unclean spirit. And let us read the Word of God together. And when they came to the disciples they saw a great crowd around them and scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, What are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute, and whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I ask your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O oh, faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it is often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Your sermon title is Faith, A Given. You know, sometimes I think we mistakenly think that faith is a New Testament word and concept. We don't usually think about that word in conjunction with the Old Testament, and yet the writer of Hebrews in his 11th chapter tells us about all kinds of heroes of faith that we find in the Old Testament. He gives us a long listing of them, and I'll give you just some of those. Abraham, Moses, Gideon, Rahab, David, and many of the prophets. And many more that he doesn't have the time to name, he tells us in that chapter. I wonder, do you ever think about who those unnamed people of faith are? I think we can find one of them in the book of 1 Samuel. Jonathan, the son of King Saul, David's best friend. These were the days when the Philistines were making war against the people of Israel. And in the book of 1 Samuel, we can read that Jonathan has a great trust in God and knows that God can give Israel victory if he chooses to do so. And so he says to his armor bearer one day, let's go down. To the garrison of these uncircumcised, it may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing can hinder the Lord from saving either by many or by few. Just like David with Goliath, his Friend Jonathan trusted God and knew that numbers or the the hopelessness of the way things seemed were not really important to God at all. He knew God could reveal a plan of victory if he so chose. And in this instance we're told God caused a great panic among the Philistine army and Israel was delivered on that day. Now you take this Jonathan story and his faith and you contrast it with this great lack of faith that we see described for us in this passage. Much like the psalmist's words of of Lament, O Lord, how long we hear a cry straight from the heart of Jesus in this passage before us. O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? The poignancy of all of this is in much better focus when we realize what takes place right before our passage. Jesus had just been up on the mountain where he was transfigured before those inner three disciples, Peter, James, and John. And through that experience, he had faced the tremendous task that lay ahead of him. Even in this glorification, he knew that God's will was the redemption of the world, and that would be through his life given up on the cross. And now after this mountaintop experience, he had come back down to find his nearest followers his own chosen men whom he had already sent out to preach and proclaim the gospel whom he had already given authority to cast out demons and spirits he found these same disciples helpless in the time of need Now, I don't know if you've studied Mark in depth or not, but this particular exorcism story that we just read is a little bit different than the others we have already seen in this gospel. For one thing, the victim's symptoms are much worse. But we can also see the significant place now held by the disciples of Jesus Because this father, in bringing his son to these disciples, assumes that he's bringing him to Jesus. It's the same as if he had brought his son to Jesus. No doubt they had preached and taught. No doubt they had cast out demons. So the father shows them his son, asks for healing, and the disciples were not able. Now, we don't know if the scribes or authorities were quick to catch on to this or not. I mean, I can just hear them saying, because we're told that an argument was taking place, we don't know what they were arguing about, but I can just hear them saying, hey, what happened to your power? It just may be that this man you follow around the countryside that you call Lord has no power, because you have none. We don't know what was said. We just know an argument was taking place. And that's the situation that Jesus enters into on his way, coming down the mountain. And that's why he cries, O faithless generation. It's not just about his disciples. A whole world of disbelief stood in the way of the restoration of this boy. What a hard thing for Jesus to face after having just experienced that wonderful spiritual experience on top of that mountain where he must have felt so close to the Father and where his glory was displayed to three of his closest friends. It it might be somewhat like you and I coming home from the best vacation we've ever had. I mean, it was just perfect in every way and and not even any traffic on the way back. And when we pull in the driveway, we see water pouring out our front door. You know, that happened to two of my neighbors in Atlanta one time. What a bad way. To come back from vacation. But of course this is so much worse. Jesus must have had a sudden realization of what anyone else would have called the hopelessness of his task. He must have wondered what it would really take to to make people of the world into people of God. But I'm sure our world is no different Surely Jesus still looks on us even on His church from time to time and says, oh, faithless generation, how long am I to bear with you? For that whole world of disbelief still stands in the way of God's will, of His love and healing, of His forgiveness and mercy In our world, even in this new year of 2017. Just like that generation long ago, our generation has a widespread disbelief in the person and teaching of Jesus as the only sure foundation of the world's survival, of the world's welfare, the only permanent cure for the world's illness. Underneath all the disease, the starvation, the pain, anger, and hate, we see in this world today a tragic faithlessness. We're scared. We're doubtful. People of the world shout in our ears, you don't mean to say that you would be so naive as to really believe that Jesus is the answer to politics and economics and relationships and everything else that's going on in this global village today. How many of us timidly answer, oh, no, of course not. We're rational, logical people, which interpreted means we're faithless. We don't really believe that Christ is the way and the truth and the life. We don't really believe that He is the resurrection and the life, or at least not as much as we believe 2 plus 2 equals 4. And we wonder why our world is in the mess that it's in. A whole world of disbelief stands in the way of the world's restoration, and yet the good news is that the power of Christ is sufficient. And not just that good news, but that Jesus reaches out to us even when we need Him most. The good news that where sin abounds, grace abounds all the more. Notice that even in the midst of all of this faithlessness, look at what Jesus says. Bring the boy to me. And instead of anticipation, he's met with more faithlessness. For the boy's father says, If you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said, If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And in this short exchange, we see our real dilemma because we have our if versus God's if. The boy's father says to Jesus, if you can do anything, could not God, who created the whole world and everything we know and all those things we can't see out of nothing, could that God not do something? And Jesus says, if you can, that is to say, if, if you can believe for the problems not my inability to do It's your lack of trust. It's your lack of faith. I believe this little passage gives some commentary on the tone of an earlier passage that we see in Mark which says that Jesus could do no mighty works in his hometown except to heal just a few sick people and he attributed that to their unbelief. It's the same type of situation here but even With that said, I don't want you to misunderstand what I'm saying or what this text is saying. That doesn't mean that all things come to those who believe. That doesn't mean that if we have enough faith, that means that our sick spouse or our sick child or our sick sibling or best friend Will be healed if we just have enough faith. That's not what Scripture teaches. We use Scripture to interpret Scripture. What does Jesus really mean here when He says, with faith, all things are possible? He's not saying that it's up to your faith and my faith to make something happen because the life of the Apostle Paul teaches that. I mean, if anybody had great faith, it was Paul. Think of all the healings that he did. Think of the way that God used him to take the gospel to the Gentile world. Think about all that Paul endured in his life. And yet Paul prayed not once, not twice, but three times for this thorn in the flesh to be gone. And God didn't take it away. Rather, he gave him the news that my grace is sufficient. Whatever you're going through, my presence, my power is sufficient. When Jesus says that all things are possible, he doesn't mean that your faith and my faith can accomplish anything. But that those who have faith will set no limits on the power of God. That will be just like Jonathan. Knowing that God can choose to save whether by many or or by few, that will be just like those three Hebrew young men we read about in the book of Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who when the king set up that golden image of himself and commanded everyone to bow down to it, they refused. And he told them, I'm going to throw you in a fiery furnace unless you bow down and worship this golden image. And they said, well, the God we worship can deliver us, O king. But even If he doesn't, in other words, even if he chooses not to, he can, but even if he chooses not to, we will not bow down and worship this image you have set up. We'll set no limits on the power of God. What is instructive here is that the Father in our story recognizes his own doubts, his own lack of faith and says, I believe. Help my unbelief. And in this request, we see the hope and the promise for us as well. For that request was all Jesus desired from the Father, and it's what he still desires from us, I believe. For faith is not something that we have forever as one of our possessions but rather it's always a gift from God. None of us ever have faith as a given because we're strange mixtures of belief and unbelief. One day we're riding on on top of the clouds. Everything is clear in our hearts and minds. We feel so close to God and His will for us. It's like we can just reach out and touch Him. And then on other days, everything has gone wrong. We feel as if every friend we've ever had have turned their backs on us. We grasp at God and find nothing but thin air. The clouds of darkness and doubt close in on us and in anger and frustration we scream why have you forsaken me when what we need to say is I believe help my unbelief it's interesting in this passage that instead of using his words to give us the reaction of the Father to the restored health of his Son, Mark instead focuses on the lesson learned by Jesus' followers. Because Jesus doesn't berate them for their failure, but simply calls them to a closer relationship with God. He answered their question of of why they couldn't heal the boy by saying this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Not prayer in the sense of some perfect invocation for casting out spirits because we don't see Jesus use that. But rather a close and enduring relationship with God. Perhaps a willingness to pray instead of argue. That's what they were doing at the beginning of the text with the scribes. Why couldn't we cast it out? Don't we ask ourselves that same question? Don't we wish to get rid of that same sin in our lives that we seem to do over and over and over again and yet like Paul we say the evil that I don't want to do is the very thing I do. Jesus gives us the same answer. Get closer to God. Spend more time with Him for this kind can only be cast out by prayer this kind of dead spiritual lives, this kind of blind eyes to need, this kind of hopelessness and despair, this kind of selfishness and greed can only be cast out by prayer, by opening the door of communion with the Father so that His love may enter in, so that God and His hope can take over our possessed lives so that like Paul we too can say it's no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me and the life I now live I live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who did what? Who loved me and gave himself for me. Even as we see this Love and this giving by Jesus Christ, right in this sacrament before us today. A time of worship in which we seek to draw closer to God. This is part of that prayer by which it's driven out. May God bless us to that end. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.